lovely listeners. You're listening to Sarah Cudmore from Homegrown Learning. And I'm joined today, not only by a sore throat, excuse the voice, <laughs> head teacher and mama of two, Ellie. So thanks for coming in today, Ellie. Um, before we start, do you want to share a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've got two children. I've got a little boy who is five and he has sensory processing disorder or sensory integration dysfunction, however you have heard of it, and a little girl who is three and a half. I've recently left my post as head of school, um, but I've been in primary school teaching for 12 years. And you're about to embark into a new, new career? Yes. Yeah, I have. I've just started retraining as a play therapist. Mm. So I'm just um, currently undertaking my postgraduate in the certificate level. And I'd love to unpick about a little bit about why you left school, another another podcast. But yep. So today we are talking about sensory processing disorder and um, just unpicking that a little bit more and hopefully giving those of you that are home educating a little bit more background and some ideas into uh, what you could be doing to support those children at home. Before we start, let's unpick what sensory processing disorder, or if we shorten it, it's known as SPD, and we'll use that shortened yeah. version for today. Um, so what is it, and has it, is it new? Has it replaced um, any other additional needs? Um, I don't think it's particularly new. We're certainly um, behind the ball compared to America, New Zealand and Australia, where it is a recognised um, um, disorder and diagnosis and condition. Um, it really um, sort of got on the map in the 70s um, by a lady called Jean Ayres, who was an occupational therapist, um, and she came up with the term sensory integration therapy, which I think we'll talk about um, a little bit later in terms of the therapy you might access. But um, I tend to explain SPD to people as a bit of like a neurological traffic jam in our brain. So all the time we are constantly... Um, um, surrounded by sensory information and stimuli and it's how our brains organise that information and then the responses we make and so for some children and adults definitely sometimes that information can get a little bit confused and the responses aren't neurotypical. Okay so that explains a lot, it's really well summarised, thank you. Is there, do you know of any statistics about the number of children diagnosed with sensory processing difficulties? So it's really tricky in the UK because um, currently it's not in the British, British Medical Journal. Um, so there are some medical experts who have read up a lot about it and have colleagues in other countries who know a lot about it and they really do recognise it and others who almost have barely heard of it. So the statistics can vary um, depending on the different sources you read. But um, my um, understanding of it as a teacher and a mum is that one in 20 people have sensory processing disorder, which it's really important to say is largely undiagnosed. And one in six people, and this is really prevalent for schools particularly, um, one in six children will have sensory integration difficulties, which will affect their day-to-day -day living, but not be a full-blown diagnosis. And... There's a few more sort of facts that we that we've put together about SPD. So, um, in ch in children who are gifted and those with ADHD, autism, and fragile X syndrome, the prevalence of SPD is much higher than in the general population. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, that just reminds me of how um, daunting it is as a parent of a child who's just been diagnosed. That when we turn to Google, as we do, to start researching things. Um, that if you type in SPD and you look through several sites, it really points you in the direction that your child, therefore, is autistic. And I think it's really worth noting that all children with autism have sensory difficulties because it is the basis of that, that syndrome, but, for ch but not all children with SPD are autistic. And there's a real difference there. So it's important to try, yes, all of those um, other spectrum disorders have their roots in sensory processing, but children can have stand standalone sensory processing difficulties. So that's sort of similar to like sensory processing disorder has unique sensory symptoms yeah. that are not explained by other known disorders. Yes. Um, is it hereditary? Yep, so there can be um, lots of different um, causes. Um, hereditary, definitely. So, for example, in our situation, um, my little boy had a lot of complications at birth, um, so his was largely caused 
they believe, by birth trauma. Um, he was, it was difficult to get him out and there were some um, mistakes made. However, I, as a parent, as an adult, have learned a lot about sensory processing and now recognise that I have quite a lot of sensory differences and preferences. And so there's probably for him a combination of factors of birth trauma and things that he has um, inherited from me. Okay, and there are, there's a sort of um, a suggested possible risk factor associated with SPD. So um, you talked about uh, maternal, uh, prenatal complications, but can be low birth weight, prematurity. I think less than 36 weeks in gestation has been linked. Um, Maternal stress. Yes, definitely. Maternal illness maternal use of medications, delivery complications, as you've talked about with your own son, assisted delivery methods, um, living with with a single parent, ethnic minority, lower socioeconomic status. I mean, they're all up for debate, but they they have been listed um, alongside those as well. So how how for a child with SPD, how, how does it change over time? Um, there are certain, definitely certain um, ages where I would say it feels more pronounced. Um, so depending, obviously all children go through their develop, developmental milestones. A child with SPD, some of those milestones can be trickier. It's not something that um, you get better from and that you grow out of. It's part of your genetic makeup and the way your um, brain works. It's your, you know, how it's wired. But we know obviously so much now about neuroplasticity and how malleable the brain is. And so particularly for children, there's so much that can be done to... Um, um, help rewire and form new new pathways. Um, so there can be a lot can be done to overcome it and to help the children learn to live with their preferences. But it's not something that you can recover from, so to speak. And I'd read something or heard somebody talk about the fact that if um, if you suspect your child's got SPD, that if you can provide as much support as you can before they're seven or eight, yeah. that can actually help the journey after seven or eight it's like slightly more difficult is that definitely that's that's how malleable really the brain is so the younger the better so always need to be thinking about early interventions particularly in the early years um but it's just even things you know from having newborn babies and thinking about tummy time it's just all of those early things that you can put in place really have such an impact on the way the brain is made up but yes sort of I think it's officially eight years and nine months or something like that it becomes um trickier not impossible obviously because as adults we're learning new stuff all the time but it is trickier to lay down new neural pathways wow what what is I've I've heard this expression sensory overload what 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 do you know about that in terms of um what does it look like with your son um we so my little boy was diagnosed at 15 months old and I would say from 15 months to maybe three he would have sensory meltdowns as we would call them um, where he's had an overload almost weekly Um, and they are they people can often say they look like a tantrum um, but I think once you've lived with a child um, who has sensory difficulties for a while you'll soon come to see the difference in them they um they're really distressing actually um, for people to witness as a parent who wants to help when the child you know the child needs reassurance and contact but actually everything in their being is saying that they need to not have touch at that time they're really tricky and they're hard they're hard for the children so um, I would say that was one of the hardest things for us to cope with early on but he is now five and I think he's had one in the last two years because of how far he's come um, with his regulation. Yeah and that can look like you know, children can be biting or yep. kicking or physically hurting or they can be sort of hiding and not, not you know, not want any sort of response, like you said, yeah. touch. For or... him, I, the only thing I could liken it to, it reminded me of a caged tiger in a pinball machine is how he used to look. So the fear in his eyes um, and pinball machine because he was going from one place to the next trying to find a little bit of sanctuary trying to find somewhere and he would often try and get in corners or under things to try and get that feeling of being enclosed um, and safe but and I think that's where you can really see the difference between sensory meltdown and a tantrum you know the the look in their eyes it's 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 terrifying for them you know they're really not in control and that's where things like making a safe place a safe Mm. den or something and they will instigate that you'll see like actually it might be under the bed is where they feel safe under the kitchen table but 
you can yeah. you can see that, can't you? Absolutely. And they'll um, each, you know, children being so unique, they will have things that. Um, different things that regulate different children so for us it was about working out what in that moment was best so we knew and and it seemed to be me that was able to comfort him we knew that he needed um some linear vestibular so some rocking so I would hold him really close but for him and going forward up until now books always seem to be his calm place so he will often retreat like you say to a corner in a safe space and want to look at books whether with me or by himself so it's about kind of finding that you know um, we're in the meltdown. What do we know is going to work really well? I was um, I met with a family a couple of weeks ago, and, and and their daughter who is eleven now has sensory processing disorder, and she now having you know being diagnosed from an early age, she has she carries everywhere with her a little sensory pack. She calls it it's a little mm. rucksack, and she's got in it. She's got headphones and a little is it a nano that you, she can listen to yep. things. She's got something that she can squeeze and she's literally got this little um, pack and she can open it up at any point when she feels... Brilliant. And, uh, you know, so I think... It's so funny. I feel exactly the same as a mum because, he, you know, I take the bag and I liken it to a Mary Poppins bag and whenever we're going out, it's got something to chew, something to fiddle with, something to draw. There's always a book and particularly as a family thinking about doing things like birthday parties or cinema trips, which are really normal parts of a childhood that you want your child to enjoy. I wouldn't go to a cinema trip without having my sensory toolkit in my handbag. Um, and it's just learning those tricks, really, and having, like we call it, you know, the toolkit ready to go. And it means that they can access all those things that you want them to access and they'd like to. I loved the bit that you spoke about a minute ago where you were like, you know, I... I just knew as a parent that it wasn't a tantrum. And I think we belong to this society where we are, we feel so judged all mm, the time. Mm. And people, you know, since I've learned about sensory processing, I'll look at children in such a different way. When I'm in the supermarket and someone's screaming and I'm, I'm looking across, I'm thinking, yeah, that's because she's been put in, a, in, in the yeah, trolley. And yeah, actually yeah, yeah. that for her is a restriction. And she's probably, you know, but yeah. I think there, there are, you know, particularly possibly with an older generation yeah. where you know pe children weren't being brought up able to express themselves perhaps like they are today but it's not being fearful of that just yeah absolutely just, and I think that's really hard that judgment that we feel and you you know as a parent of a child with sensory difficulties you want to avoid that meltdown at all costs and I think um, I often say to to people that I feel like I'm his buffer to the world and so I feel he is most um, at ease when I'm around because what we do is we see these things coming and I know what's going to trigger him and I I can see that that's going to be you know a difficult experience for him so I will kind of tailor things in the environment and it's not saying that we don't want to expose children to things that are tricky and challenging but it's doing it in a way that obviously doesn't cause this huge upset because actually what you're talking about the difference between a tantrum and a meltdown is your child's system being flooded with adrenaline and cortisol well that's just not good for anybody so I have found myself as he's got older and we've learned to live with it better able to cope with the judgment because where people might think I'm just pandering to his every need and um, perhaps wrapping him in cotton wool is as some, somebody has once said to me actually I know I'm doing the right thing for my child and they're all unique aren't they and only we know what's best for them yeah, totally. So let's talk a little bit about your son and and school and, and how, how does he cope in a school environment? Yeah, so I was quite worried about that. Um, he actually went to an amazing nursery who were totally on board with um, sensory integration and gave met all of his needs. It couldn't have been more wonderful. But I know firsthand the stresses of a school budget and the restraints of busy timetables and busy teachers. So... Um, we have, because my little boy has had this, you know, from 15 months that we've known about, he is very good at saying what he needs. So I think that's been really helpful. Um, we have some equipment that we've taken into school. So we have what he calls his pro band, which is like a resistance band that you might use in the gym. So that hangs in the teacher's cupboard and he knows he can go and get that if he needs it. But um, it's hard. He is probably um, very similar to a lot of children who I would say are under the radar. So he does not have such a profound need that he accesses, accesses any intervention time with any adults in school. You know, there's, there's not a one-to-one, -one, there's no IEP. So despite the fact that he has an actual diagnosis from a registered occupational therapist, 
there isn't a huge amount that he is able to access because his need isn't great enough. So what you're what you then have is a situation where he just has to cope as best he can and learn to manage. So as a parent, it's been about getting in and having as many meetings as possible. Um, uh, for example, when he started in reception, um, the teacher hadn't really heard of it. So we had a meeting and we talked about it, but I think she needed to see it with her own eyes. So something we noticed started happening after about three weeks in school, he was blinking um, a huge amount, really significantly. And actually what his brain was doing was trying to shut out too much information. So he'd become hypersensitive because his needs weren't being met. He was getting too much information through his eyes. So by blinking, he was trying to, his brain is so clever. He was trying to shut out getting in too much information. So having that really um, actual physical thing for her to be able to see was very helpful. But I feel sad that it had to escalate to a point that we developed a new symptom really for anything to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, so like if we if we flip it around, so your experience and, um, you know, obviously I can chip in with this having been a head teacher myself. But in terms of the school system, mm. how... How do you cope with, if we're talking about one in six children, how do you cope with this in the classroom? These children that are not, you know, some children with sensory processing will come with a a, a full plan and yeah. they will come with yeah. an additional, additional support. But children like your son, who've, who've got these difficulties and there's like one in six of these... Mm. What can you do? What, yeah. what is being done? Do you, do you feel like it's on the radar for teachers? I feel like, interestingly, in the five years that I've had him, I've gone from not hearing it mentioned in the educational sector at all and really feeling like this was all new ground for me as a parent and I couldn't believe that I'd not come across it as a teacher, really just baffled me, to now, brilliantly, five years on, Senko conferences, there's a sensory slot. It's definitely something that's talked about and we are seemingly, as a country, um, as a system, educational system, we're starting to actually wake up and pay attention to it because it, it's massive and this is what I try and say to my staff in my school. This is what's good for a sensory child, actually is good for all children because first and foremost we're all sensory beings so if you take away the emotional intelligence and the, the empathy and the reasoning and that higher order thinking we're all just really just functioning on a sensory level so by meeting your sensory needs and knowing your sensory profile life is just easier everything everything's easier so what sort of things get in the way to support these children in school do you do you feel um not enough movement timetable restrictions um noise um you can imagine how challenging a school canteen can be for a child who is auditory sensitive also has a really heightened sense of smell has a really strong gag reflex like that is just really overwhelming and i've seen firsthand in the last couple of years now that we're um, really looking at it in the school I was in, um, what little changes we can make for those children. So it might be that they need to go into the dinner hall earlier or they need to go in last. And it's just making allowances, really. But that I would say dinner times, lunch times, if you're a child whose vestibular system is a little bit out of whack and you are really unbalanced just about going your everyday business, lunch times with age ranges from reception to year six with children running around as fast as they can can be really scary so having quiet areas to retreat to but i think bef even if you strip aside all equipment and everything is about the people and upskilling the staff and making sure that these children know that you acknowledge that school's quite hard mm. and um <clears throat> it reminds reminds me of way back when we were making sure that our schools were dyslexic friendly classrooms mm. it's almost like we need to go into this as sensory um, yeah sensory friendly schools wouldn't that be amazing to have an accreditation where you know we used to have at the bottom of our letters you know we're a healthy school we're a dyslexia friendly school that would be amazing to think that we might get to the point where schools were recognized as being sensory friendly because like we say that's good for all children you know and, and adults staff <laughs> and i guess i guess you know there are so many restrictions on school i guess the problem is, is that schools in the just in the last like four years have become so data focused mm. and so driven that there is less movement in school. There's less of that um, opportunity for fluid, for reactive, mm. being reactive to these children. So the system does need to change as well to be able to allow, because the problem is 
a sensory child. You can't timetable in no. when they're going to need no. some, some no. intervention. It, it just needs to happen as and when. It, and like you say, yeah. it's about the children learning what they need, when they need, and yeah. being able to access that. Yeah, rather absolutely. Than, um, and we we have a large sensory box in the hall where I was working recently and so um, children could go and access bits and pieces as and went and just before I left we actually spent some money on making sure that there was a kit in every classroom so that um, a child who ideally needed to remain in the classroom for the learning and they might be really engaged in the learning we're not talking about children here who are wanting to get out of the room because they're not excited about learning it's that they're not actually physically able to learn because they're so overwhelmed you know with the sensory material that they're trying to process so by having things in the classroom and not seeing them as toys and fidget things that people are just picking up and oh so and so's got that by normalizing it and having these boxes in classrooms where a child can go do you know what you're expecting me to sit down and write a story but I'm really struggling I know I need some proprioception I'm going to go and get a bowl and in my non-writing hand I'm going to squeeze that for the next half an hour like they're small small changes for massive wins but like you say it was perfect when you said it's about the um it's about the teachers, it's about the yeah. people in the classroom because I can just think back to like little Johnny who's sitting in his chair chewing his jumper, mm. chew, 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 and the teacher says, take that out of your mouth, take that out of your mouth. Actually, <laughs> sit he's, properly. He's telling us something, isn't <laughs> yeah. he? You know, and I think we, we, it's great to hear that your school is starting to do that, but there's so much that needs to happen for these children and, and, and they would get so much more out of these children if, yes. if, if that was available Absolutely. to them. Absolutely. This is, I was you know, speaking to an educational consultant and I was saying, actually, you're driven by data and outcomes, but actually by making these changes and ensuring your children are in a state of readiness to learn, you can't not impact on your data and your outcomes because they're going to learn better because they're ready to learn. If you are overwhelmed or you are, um, if you're overreactive or underreactive to sensory stimuli, you cannot commit things to your long-term memory. You can't concentrate and maintain focus. You can't sit still. You can't process. You can't reason. You can't problem solve. Well, that basically ticks all the boxes for what you need in a pupil, right? So it's, it's, it's just, yeah, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> And, you know, I've got to say from the other side, so therefore, if you are in a position where you can home educate your, your child or, or you, you think that's right, actually, you, you can't be going wrong with a child who's got um, sensory processing and you are giving them home mm. education purely because you are hopefully giving them fluid time where you're reactive and you're able to educate them about themselves and how to survive in in the world with with all their little quirks that that they've got yeah so. absolutely and it's things like even the weather can um have an impact on my son so you know it, like you were saying being able to be reactive and make that personalized learning for them in a home environment so where those seasonal weather changes anything like that can make a difference um you know, with with older girls, hormonal fluctuations, it can it can be all sorts of things. And it means that you're able to read that child and say, well, actually, today, that's going to be that's going to be a bridge too far. That's going to be too challenging. That makes me laugh, actually, because I can remember back to school when it's like it's a wet and windy day. And, you know, yeah. that the children <laughs> in the classroom are going to be Wild. hellish all day. But actually, in a home environment, you can say, right, I can see this is happening today. OK, we're just going to go really slowly mm. with this. OK, we're going to have a break now and we're going to come back to this later. And all of that's okay and actually that is actually aiding them in the future where they can you know if they're in a stressful situation as an adult they will have those tools to be able to say right give myself five minutes out to just yeah. breathe and and then I'll come back to it yeah and so and I do actually think the workplace is getting better for that because yeah. there's so much flexible working working from home higher workstations all those things so Keeping I think people moving. that's mm. a really positive yeah. thing for these children. Definitely. Um, I don't think we've talked much about how sensory processing affects motor skills. Is there anything you want to... Yeah, so um, normally when you um, are, you know, you're pursuing a diagnosis, it's because obviously there's been a red flag and something has flagged up for you that, that we've got a little problem here. So for us, for my little boy, it was a um, developmental delay in his gross motor skills. So, you know, really late walking... Um, but it was more, you know, obviously children walk at different times, but it was things that you just think, well, but there's no transitional movement. They can't rock from their, you know, sitting position to all fours. There just seemed to be um, a lack of fluidity in his physical movements. So that was kind of our red flag. Um, and that was what a lot of his early interventions and therapy were focused on. But I can... 
100% hand on heart say for every parent I've spoken to at school where their child is displaying some sensory processing difficulties, nearly all of those children have some fine motor difficulties as well. So lots of them really struggle with hand handwriting. There's a huge overlap with dyspraxia, um, coordination, you know, DCD, those it, it really does it does seem to be a trend where it does impact. And I was really gobsmacked because I've, I've always been really aware of um, dyspraxia, dyslexia and stuff in school. But when I started to look at what dyspraxia actually is, so I would identify a child at school as someone who couldn't form their handwriting very mm. well or maybe was a little bit awkward with their movement. But there's actually so much more yeah. to dyspraxia yeah. than than that yeah. than that. So, um, which go just goes to show how much more education yeah, there needs to absolutely. be for... Um, professionals to be more aware of the of of, of all the aspects. Yeah, of it. things like I didn't you've never even heard of motor planning. So, you know, my child really struggled with motor planning. So that basically means, you know, how am I going to get across the hall at school or at home with a really cluttered lounge from point A to point B without falling over all of those toys? So literally plotting your route, and you might find children are seemingly fine at motor planning but then you put them in a what's called a novel situation where they've not come across this room and these obstacles and things, and then it's really tricky. That in itself can be really overwhelming when you just think on a day-to-day -day basis how much stuff you encounter that you have to physically move around. Mm -hmm. So many things that we take for granted, really. And going into things like, I know I want to make this, but yeah. my my brain won't function, won't give me mm. the steps in order to make yep. this. So now I'm really frustrated because I want to make it, but yeah. I don't know how to get there. Yeah, frustration is a really, really big one, I think, to deal with. Um, you talked a little bit. Can you talk about sensory integration and sensory processing? Is there a difference? or is No, so I knew it as... SPD, sensory processing disorder, sensory integration dysfunction. Um, I think it's just another way of saying the same thing. Um, but that links into the specific therapy. So I guess, so I tend to refer it to it as sensory integration dysfunction. But really talk a lot about just sensory preferences, which we all have. So I... Um, so, you know, it's a huge broad spectrum. So sensory integration therapy is what we accessed for my little boy um, from 15 months old um, every week until he was uh, two and a half, I think. Um, and that is basically taking a child to um, a playroom, so to speak. And the idea is that you um, are giving them challenging their sensory system but in a really it's amazingly clever it looks like play it's play based obviously so the children are really engaged but you are um challenging their sensory system thinking about making those new pathways and and how that, the wiring of the brain but in that safe space so like earlier we were talking about people maybe thinking that you're just wrapping them in cotton wool and mm. you're not exposing them to challenge it's about doing that in the right way in environments where they feel really comfortable. And the idea then is once they have um, uh, achieved it in that safe space, that they can then apply it outside of the playroom, you know, throughout their life. And we are, yeah, a textbook example of how well it's worked. It was, it, it honestly, as a parent who'd never heard of it, it saved my our life it felt like it felt like it saved our sanity so just going sort of straight to that in, in terms of like what did because I, I a lot of people I've spoken to have said they think that their child has got this but um they've had very differing um support from GPs so I know a couple of families who've been to the GP have basically been told that it's like it's a two-year assessment it's a two-year wait mm. to be put on the um, on the waiting list to then be assessed. But um, I know some people have talked about GPs who have just don't have any idea yeah. about it. It's not it's not on there. What what was your experience and how did you get him assessed? Uh, our experience was tricky. We um, I went to a GP who I really trusted um, and I said, I know there's a problem. You know that intuition that you have, that you just know. Um, and I sort of outlined what my concerns were. And he basically, I think he said something like, well, Einstein didn't walk until he was five or something like that, which was not helpful. And I felt like he just slapped a big label on my back, which said neurotic, pushy mum, and sort of sent me out. And someone said to me, well, there you go. You need to leave it now because you trust him. And he said he's fine. So you need to just let it go. But you know, you don't because you know there's a problem. And actually, it was really fortunate that um, we were seeing a cranial osteopath because he'd had the birth trauma, like I mentioned earlier. And she's from New Zealand. 
and surprise, surprise, <laughs> in New Zealand it's recognised. And she said, I think there might be some sensory processing issues. And that was based on his physical, how he was presenting. And actually, when I then said to her, is that why he is banging his head on the cupboards? Is that why he, you know, won't touch certain surfaces? And I listed off all these things and she was like, oh, yes, definitely. Because obviously I wasn't going to her for those things. So when we linked the physical symptoms with the behaviours, it was really apparent that that was definitely what the issue was. However, um, I was told at the time, and I don't know at all if this is still the case, that sensory processing wouldn't be considered by the NHS until the child was five. So um, I actually, we accessed private sensory integration therapy. And the good thing about that is, is that you're dealing with someone who is a occupational therapist first and foremost but has specialised in sensory integration in SI and my worry sometimes with the NHS system is that you may end up work, be working with somebody who is an OT who does know about sensory but isn't a specialist in sensory integration therapy and that's really it needs to be that targeted so we did pay for private therapy um, but I'm sure if you're willing to go through the wait um, that you can access really fabulous people um, through you know the government system but for us it was a case I was I was just fobbed off really and I'd like to think with everything you've talked about and the fact that this is becoming more um, um, our country is getting updated that maybe that that will be easier within the mm. NHS but then we're in such crisis with money money yeah. so it's really hard it would be nice to think that our young you know yeah. young children before the age yeah. of eight are getting recognized and getting the right the earlier kind of support. the better but um so you can get you can get a sipped yep which is about £500. Can you just explain what a SIPT is? Sensory integration praxis test. So it's basically, um, I think the child has to be four. Um, is that right? Yeah, for them, it, yeah, yeah, for them to be sure. sipted, so to speak. Um, and it's basically an assessment that the sensory integration OT will go through with the child, looking at the different areas. So looking at balance, looking at their tactile system, various things, really, really clever. Um, and it will produce a report. So you will get a graph and obviously um, lots of quantitative data, which can look a little bit overwhelming. But if you've got a good sensory integration therapist, you'll get a lovely report, which is written in normal terms and just outlines things that are difficult for the child also their strengths because we know there are loads of strengths of these children what I really love about the way we've kind of managed things with my little boy is that he has so many wonderful skills because of his sensory processing disorder so yes he is auditory sensitive and he's hyper visual but because of that he's actually really amazing and observant and things and his I'm sure his sense of empathy and how sensitive he is towards others is because of his um, sensory difficulty. So you can really flip it on its head and see it as a real positive. Um, so they'll outline their strengths, talk about um, some of the weaknesses and things they're struggling with and give you recommendations, um, give the school recommendations, give you recommendations for home. It's amazing, like we were saying. I, think I can remember seeing one when I, um, when I was a head teacher of a child who came into reception and I remember saying, Flipping Nora, if we could get yeah. one of these on every child who comes into reception, yeah. just in that year, focus on that and what we could do for them. By the time they're eight, they will be able to access things in a very different way. Yeah, so I think absolutely. like for five hundred pounds, which is a lot of money, and I know that you know that that particularly for home um, educating families where you know money generally yeah. is tighter yeah. because of the yeah. the, the um, limit to to working perhaps in the same way, but. I know as a practitioner the the information you got on each of those children was Amazing. just like and actually although I don't want to talk about grouping children in terms of thinking about senses you could you could group them loosely mm -hmm. around what yep. what you what input you know that that little group of children would need in comparison to that group or um, oh, we've absolutely. got someone coming in today to see um, to do something in the class well, we know that that little group of children needs some input before somebody comes in and yeah. just Knowing that, I think, is, is huge. Definitely. It's knowing that it's knowing your child's um, profile, really, and it makes everything so much easier. You have a huge understanding, and you're absolutely right. In the, in the school I was working in, we were able to loosely group children for some intervention groups in terms of those who were under-responsive and those who were over-responsive because they need very similar things. So it's, it, it's, it's 
yes, they're individuals, but lots of them have a lot of um, similarities. So you can do that, which is really helpful and gives that children that really nice sense of, oh, it's not just me. I, you know, you know that we use the word quirky a lot and they are often quite quirky children, but it's really refreshing for them to see, oh, I'm in a working in a little group and everybody finds that a bit tricky. It's nice, builds a bit of camaraderie, I think. And I know, like we talked about in school, that um, some of these children that um, don't have one-to-one support, but I do know of families who've had that SIPT um, assessment and have been able to access uh, DLA funding. So that's really helpful for for buying some resources at home for some swings or some, you know, equipment like your sensory box and things like that. Or also... Um, potentially um, supporting other things like swimming lessons, mm-hmm. so maybe giving them one-to-one swimming because the echo of a group of swimmers, yeah. you know, could be hellish for some Getting of those children. Getting dressed when you're that wet, sticky feeling, like that, if you're tactile defensive, that's a nightmare. Socks, <laughs> the bane of my life. On the same level, swimming could be an absolutely vital tool for oh, a child yeah. with sensory because they're getting so much input from... Yeah, full body. And that's yeah. So at an early age, it might be really important to get that child swimming once yeah. a week. And so that, that, that kind of funding can help that. And I'll, I'll put a link on the uh, podcast site for any families that do have that um, assessment. And then I was just going to chip in and say that um, in, the, in the time that you're p- potentially either waiting for an assessment or you are um, saving and considering a, um, a SIPT report on your child... Um, it would be really useful to make sure that you're collecting as much, I hate Mm. using the word evidence, but it's such a a great word, so collecting things. So if you're a home-educating family, you might want to use um, my app collage to record um, where they're working in terms of the national curriculum. It's actually quite useful because for some of these children, they might not be able to access the national curriculum. might be really quite bright, but because of... The sensory processing mm. difficulties they mm. might be finding they might be sort of slightly behind particularly like in english where they can't um if they've got those dyspraxic sort of issues they're they're not able to like yeah. write stories or yeah. plan out things prior to to doing them um and likewise in maths there might be some particular maths oh, functions especially when you be... think about space shape and space and spatial awareness and um, you know co- coordinates and all of that you know it's maths can be a real tricky one yeah. And even if you're not using the curriculum aspect of collage, you could just use the subject um, headings to just be collecting little little videos of physical development in PE, for example. Yeah. And um, you would be able to show uh, a practitioner when you're going for an assessment, you know, where, where your child's at. Uh, I, think I, would have, I would have found that really helpful, actually, because I've still got on my notes section in my phone all of the things that were presenting that I was concerned about and trying to put the dots together myself and actually then just going to somebody, you know, I had just sort of, you know, a basic list in my phone, but having something, I, kn- I know it's, you know, evidence isn't, you know, it's not it's not the be-all and end-all, but as a parent trying to fight my son's case, it was really, really helpful to have as much evidence to hand as possible to explain to somebody what it's like day-to-day for us. Yeah, no, totally. And even if you're not using any of them, um, like Ellie just said, you know, on your phone, you know, trying to keep a file of, of photo, video evidence or um, notes section, mm. just, you know, keeping a little diary of, of, of those t- tantrums and things like... And not tantrums, but those yeah, meltdowns. yeah. Um, and, and potentially what's caused Triggers, them. yeah, definitely. Really see good. if you can see any patterns. Um, and I think after you've had that, like, SIPT report, is then suggested that you have, like, a course of 12 weeks, roughly, at a time of, a, like, weekly intervention, um, just to give you an idea that I think, on average, it's about £50 yeah, a ours, week. Yeah, ours was. And that's really great. So, But what I wanted to talk about was, if you can't afford that, um, what could you be doing at home? And obviously, bearing in mind that that you know you're not qualified sure. in that area, yeah. but you've got so much background in terms of, can you give any practical ideas yeah. for home educating families as to what resources and what they could do? So I think the biggest one. Um, so I 
always just assumed and had heard we had five senses. So to find out we had eight, um, but really in a sensory point of view that we talk about this seven, famous five and secret seven, so to speak, um, proprioception being one of them is basically um, um, at the end of all your muscles, you have little receptors that send messages to your brain about how hard, how fast, how light, how heavy. So it's all about forces. And what proprioception does is dampen arousal levels um, and help regulate um, us all, not just children, and I, I don't want to just say sensory children, but all of us. So you hear people say that, oh, they can't not go to the gym because they're addicted to the, in, um, uh, the in, adorf, endorphins, the feel-good hormones. But actually, I think I would argue that, yes, the endorphins, but also proprioception makes you feel so good. So that is my um, top tip. My magic wand at home is proprioception. So um, it's weighted activity. So if my little boy is struggling and I can see he's escalating and he's becoming a little bit overwhelmed... We'll get out, as I talked about before, the probe band and play tug of war. If I'm busy with my little girl, because we're often all very busy, he can hook out on a door that's not going to open and he can do that. He can pull it on his foot. Um, we like, as humans, we like to get proprioception through our jaw. So I will often give him um, a smoothie if he is going um, through a thick straw, um, a thick smoothie, sorry, through a, through a narrow straw to make him really work hard. If we're going to the cinema or if he's going to a party or somewhere that I know is going to be quite a sensory onslaught I will do loads of proprioception before we go so pushing boxes across the floor um, he often wants to still say you know can we um, make an obstacle course so we just make it fun when he was little we used to call it boot camp um, um, and it was you know part of every day now I would say you know we just like you said we see when he needs it and you can read your children um, and we see what he what he needs so proprioception is a great one because children who are over responsive need it to regulate and bring them down their arousal ladder and children who are under responsive need it to alert them so it's one of those tools that you can't really go wrong with so just think of it as resistant activity so I will get him to do press-ups against the wall so he can do things independently or we can do things together and um I've seen I've seen other um, recently because there's a lot of talk about like weighted blankets and things mm. like that, which I think are really great. But I think tricky in the summer. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw someone recently got some stretchy nylon fabric and tucked it like it was like a sheet on the bed, so that the child slept with a underneath that, and obviously that would dependent yeah. on their age. Yeah. But that made them feel grounded yeah, without and then, needing loads of layers which makes them hot yes yeah. and then they just had a really really thin blanket on top of that yeah. but um you I remember when your little boy was little and you made a swing under the table under the kitchen oh, yeah table. with one of my baby wraps yeah. yeah yeah oh so many little yeah I forget actually some of the things we've done so so um linear vestibular sounds really complicated vestibular just means um it's like your balance um sort of sense um so if you imagine rocking forwards and backwards it's linear because it's in a straight line we all find that really soothing so we often do that um you know pregnant women they will rock babies like being rocked adults and children are exactly the same so making a swing and having a hammock anything like that that you can just have it doesn't need to cost a lot of money um can be really helpful as well um other little things that we've done um let me think he likes um to chew and um he's five you know five and a half now and like you said we get children at school who are zipping chewing on the zips chewing on their arm so we've got some sensory toys that we've bought that are quite cheap so a chewy so sometimes he'll need you know need to use that um crunchy food's great so i'll often offer him an apple or um, carrot sticks that are raw because again that's giving him proprioception through the jaw so they're things that he doesn't really know he's getting but they're little things that we've tailored to make sure that throughout the day he's getting lots of proprioception and I've seen um, a couple of families, one that I visited a couple of weeks ago, had that gym bar. You can buy like a gym gym bar, like a pull-up bar yep. that goes on your door frame. Really quite cheap, yeah. like 20 quid or something. And then you can get um, swing adapting things like swings or yeah, rope ladder yeah. or a bar that they can hook their legs over and just hang upside down. Lots of children like being inverted. So um, my little girl... Um, hasn't got SPD, but she definitely has sensory preferences like everybody. And she loves, she's the complete opposite of my little boy. So she likes everything 
fizzy, whizzy, spinning, fast, and he is totally the opposite and Mr. Cautious. So they have completely different sensory profiles um, and she would love to be hanging upside down and inverted, whereas he would find that really challenging and traumatic. So again, it's just like we were saying, it's so good to know the profile because it just makes parenting easier. It's making me laugh, actually. <clears throat> I'm actually going to put on my on this podcast the photo that's going to be up for the podcast. It's going to be a picture of my daughter upside down oh, eating, I think. Yeah. Because... You know, she's on the sofa, she's upside down, but she's eating, she's trying to drink, yeah. you know, just, and, and and I wouldn't particularly class her as having sensory yeah, processing, just but a just, preference. just a preference. Yeah, so absolutely. Really, really great. Um, just before we finish, like, is there any, I mean, we, I feel like we could talk about this yeah, for a oh lot gosh, longer because it's, it's a really it's hot topic as well. But what advice would you give these home educating families where there's a child particularly with mm. um, sensory processing, is there? I would say um, uh, educating your family and your spouse. If, like, so for me, having an educational background, I kind of threw myself fully into learning as much about it as I could. So, making sure that my husband felt really um, clear on what what my little boy needed as well. But educating your family because you know they might be around your child a lot, and it's about acceptance and awareness and just making it feel that there's not this judgment like we said before and also that if they are babysitting or looking after them or you're popping to the shops and they have a sensory meltdown that they're going to feel like they know they, they know what to do so I made some just printed out a couple of really um, simple term articles for my sisters and my parents and they were great and we spent an evening um, you know with a bottle of wine and we talked about what you know what he, what he needs and and what to do in certain situations and we just went on a big family holiday holiday and it was great because he had not greatly he had a tricky morning but he had a really tricky morning and the five other children were able my sister was able to talk to them about you know we need to just be really kind and gentle today because he's having a bit of a tricky day and it just made all the difference so educate your family and build some support around yourself and I think also self-care for yourself because I found it, it makes me a bit emotional talking about it <laughs> I found it a really lonely time initially um, and we've come on a huge journey but I, I it's, it's, it's daunting to be diagnosed with something that you've never heard of I think that's it's really hard because it feels overwhelming don't read too much stuff other than things you're pointed in the direction of but I joined actually a couple of um, social media um, private closed network groups and just having some people in my phone who live, were living with the same difficulties was an absolute lifeline and I found that um, really really helpful because my close group of mummy friends where you know where they're all the same age and they're all going through those milestones and your child is still not walking and still not doing those things it's just hard you know when you get to the you go to the soft play and they all say oh we've reached the age where we can sit and have a cup of tea and they can just play and your child is the only one who can't climb on anything and you spend your entire time in the soft play and they're all having a cup of tea literally I know it sounds funny doesn't it but it used to break me and it was it was really hard so have a little community to reach out to some people who can empathize and give you some give you some advice I think that's a really good thing about social media these days there's somebody there and well I think it would be really nice if that's okay to share mm. that we'll put that as a as a link at the bottom yeah um, definitely and I think it's and equally you put my you put my contact details on there you mm. know like yeah, it's fine. Oh, bless you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think I think the self-care, I think it's important to remember that as home educators anyway, self-care is really important because you're 24-7 mm. potentially with your children. Um, you know, lots of families I know have got no families nearby them um, and rarely get a break, but it's about seizing every opportunity you can to go somewhere and breathe for five minutes. Mm. Um you know, if you're not going to work, you you haven't potentially got that time away just to switch off and be doing something different. Um, so living with them 24-7 and seeing every little thing um, is, is, is beautiful, but it is really important. Whatever your thing is, whether it's, you know, whether you can meditate or whether you can do a bit of yoga or whether you can just get out for a five-minute walk when your partner gets in or whether you can get to know other um, home-educating families and you can... If you're at a group, you can just say, I just need 10 minutes out. Do you mind if I just go and sit under that tree while mm. they are in a, a happy um, situation? All of those things are really, really important for self-care because it's having a child with sensory processing mm. is demanding, isn't yeah, it, of your time? It is exhausting. Um, 
But positively, I absolutely love the bit where you talk about taking his strengths and making those just so positive. Yeah. They are like, they are, well, all children are beautiful yeah. and unique, but you know, that it is really special about them. And, you know, it is, and he'll say, he'll say, that's my superpower, isn't it, mummy? And we, you know, we call them his superpowers, and they are, but it's like having super spidey, like spidey senses, you know? And I am very open in sharing my sensory preferences with him and my family, and, you know, we talk about, like, well, 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 we're really good at that because, you know, we're really good at spotting things with our eyes, and celebrating that is so important, I think. Yeah, and working with siblings to help them to yes, understand. that's a great point. Particularly when they're younger. Um, yes. I've heard people talk to, like, the younger siblings and say, like and explain to them that, that you know, you know, so-and-so does that because their brain operates in this way, but your brain doesn't operate in that way, so you, you mm. don't have to copy that mm. behaviour. You can just be you, And um, but while that child's doing that, we we need to just give them space yeah. and, and let them, you know, it's really hard for it's children. It's really hard, to, and it's hard, and it's important to monitor whether, you know, there's some learned behaviours going on, because, mm. like you say, they might be a younger sibling, and they just think, well, this is how my brother behaves, so this is how I respond to that situation. Um, and also, you know, my so in our house, for example, it's making sure that his little sister has her share of the limelight, so to speak, because he is so fascinating and so fascinated by everything around him. He will talk and talk and talk, and he says, I'm such a chatterbox, and he <laughs> is, but it's making sure that she has that chance to shine as well. So I would say definitely as part of the self-care, build in some time to some one-on-one -on -one time with both of them at separate times. Um, and I... I've had to learn to let other people help be the buffer to his world yeah. because it's a lot to have on one person's shoulders and also it's really important that he knows and feels secure with other adults, not just you, um, because obviously, you know, you're not always there. So it's, it's really important to let other people let other people in and share the load. Ellie, I've really, really enjoyed recording this podcast today and I'm glad my voice has just about made it. <laughs> You've got a wealth of experience as a, as a beautiful mum and I, th I really think... As home educators, there's been a lot that you've talked about today that even for children without sensory processing, yeah. well, there's definitely stuff we could take away. So thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Um, I hope this po podcast has helped you. And um, if you've got any questions either around this topic or anything else that you'd like support with or to know more about, if you want to email in your questions and I will put them into our question and answer sessions. But until then... Stay calm and carry on.